I'm going to come around to the Word of God now. So if you've got a Bible with you, if you want to turn with me to the book of 1 Peter this morning, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3 together this morning. And we'll begin together at verse 8. And this is what it says. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Do, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against you, your good behavior in Christ, may be ashamed of their slander. Let's pray together this morning. Father God, we do thank you for your words, and I pray that as we open up this passage a little bit together this morning, as we think about other passages too, and we think about what it means for us to be a disciple of Jesus. Lord, that we'll hear your voice speaking to each and every one of us. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I wonder for you, as you look back on your journey of faith, if you can think back to some pivotal people on your particular journey who have shaped where you are today. For me, the reality is that when I look back on my journey, I am stood where I am stood today really because of three people who impacted my life in such a way that led me to really know Jesus. The first was when I was eight years old. As a young child, I was made to go to Sunday school. It was at a high Anglican church and I've got to be honest, I absolutely hated it. My mum, who is not a Christian, saw this as free childcare on a Sunday morning, so would often just kick me off to this Sunday school at this church. And honestly, it was one of the worst things that I experienced at that point in my life. So I nagged my mum, I begged her, please, can I stop going along to this particular church every single week? Why do I have to do that? All my friends are at home watching cartoons on a Sunday morning. I don't want to be going along to this church. Eventually, after the nagging, my mum eventually relented and said, all right, you don't have to go anymore. But a friend of mine called Tim, at the age of eight, invited me along to a kids club at his church. And I went along to this purely because they had a football team and I wanted to play football. So I went along to this church and they had a club on a Wednesday evening. I remember very vividly one Wednesday sitting there drinking my watered down squash and a digestive biscuit. And this kid called Tim turned to me and he said to me, Luke, are you a Christian? 
And I said, yeah, well, I went to Sunday school. Yeah, I'm a Christian. And he said to me, Luke, but have you asked Jesus into your life? And I said, no, I haven't asked Jesus into my life. And he said, Luke, you need to do it, and you need to do it now. So I said, okay. And I prayed a prayer, which went along the lines of, dear gods, please come into my life. Amen. I had no clue what I was praying, but my heart was sincere. And I believe that God took me at my word that day, and he led me along a journey where eventually I would accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. The next person who impacted my life was a youth leader called Giles. I went along to a youth club at a church near my house, and I went along, and Giles actually took the time to listen to me, to care for me. He genuinely wanted to know about me. And over the course of conversations with this guy called Giles, he told me about Jesus. I was under the impression at this stage of my life, really, anyway, that all roads led to God. It didn't really matter what you believed, as long as you were sincere and you followed what you believed, that would be okay. But he told me that Jesus was the only way to God. And then he invited me along to church. And I went along to church, and I've got to be honest, when I went along to this church, I was absolutely freaked out. It was a Baptist church, totally different experience to the church that I previously had to go to as a young child. And people seemed to actually believe what they were singing about. And it freaked me out. And I remember going home to my mum and saying, Mum, you would not believe where I've just been. And she said to me, Luke is obviously a cult. I would steer well clear of it. But I didn't steer well clear of it purely because of the fact that there were girls at this church. And I went along because I went to an all-boys school. And this was one of the only times in my life that I got to interact with girls. So I went along to this church week after week after week. And it was there I met another youth leader called... Paul. Now, Paul ran an alpha course, and I went on this alpha course, and at the age of 14 years old, I gave my life to Jesus. And really, it was Paul who kept me on the straight and narrow all of those years after that. It was him who kept my eyes fixed upon Jesus, because this will be hard for you to believe, I know this, but as a teenager, I could be a little bit of an idiot. And it was Paul who kept me focused on Jesus in those formative teenage years. And the reality is, what I've just shared with you about my story, a little bit about my story, is not a unique story. If you are here today and you call yourself a Christian, I guarantee that you have a similar story in some way, shape or form to me. Even if that story is, I had a godly parent who brought me along to church and as a result of their faith, I came to know Jesus for myself. Every one of us has people in our lives which have shaped who we are when we think of our Christian journey. And here's the thing. We need to realize that when we're talking about discipleship, when we focus on what truly makes us a disciple, we soon realize that as disciples we have a responsibility to tell others about Jesus. Because here's the thing, when we're talking about discipleship, we're talking really about who we are called to be at our very core. And what we learned last week when Zoe preached is that first and foremost, we as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, are called to be part of the people of God, called to be part of his body. That's why what Zoe was sharing last week was so important because we can't live this life on our own. We can't live this life in isolation. You can't say, I love Jesus, but I hate his church or I can't get on with his church because Jesus loves the church. 
and he calls us to be part of his church. And the point of that message last week was not uh, an exhortation to say, come to church more, although I would encourage you, if you don't come to church that often, to come and be with the family of God as much as you can be. That was not the point of it. The point is that we should prioritize moments as Christians where we can be together, where we can rub off one another, where we can help and encourage one another and do life together. Why is that so important? Because the outworking of us doing life together is that we're then called on mission together. We're then called to go out of our buildings. We're then called to go out into our communities and tell people about the hope that we have in Jesus. You see, the hope that Jesus gives us, we are then called to give away to others. And what was it that Jesus said just before he went, and, uh, went into heaven? He said this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded and I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus did not say the outworking of your faith is to be on, on as many church rotors as you can possibly be. He said the message that you have received, the good news that you have heard, that which has begun to change your life, I want you now to go and give it away to others. In the passage that we've heard read together today, Peter is instructing the church really on how to live in a world which is hostile to their presence. And Peter's words really are shaped by the suffering that the church is facing at the time. The guidelines that he is giving the church here is looking at it through the lens of persecution that they are going through. Peter is writing to a group of people who basically had no hope whatsoever. This was a group of people who understood what it meant to live in a world of suffering. Peter was writing this letter probably around the time of AD 60, AD 65. It was a time where there was a guy called Nero who was the emperor of Rome. And to put it mildly, this guy Nero was an absolute psychopath. Nero, he murdered his own mother. He killed his first wife and he probably killed his second wife as well. And history believes that Nero started the great fire of Rome. He had this lust for building buildings. He loved it. It was one of his favorite pastimes to do. And he wanted to totally reshape and remodel the city of Rome. But here's the thing. The Senate at the time said, no, we don't want to go down that route. And we don't want that to happen. So it's believed that Nero started a fire deliberately in Rome which raged for six days, and then they got it under control, and it raged for another three days. And he did this in order to get his way to reshape and remodel the city. And who did Nero blame that fire on? He blamed it on a group of people who others already looked down on called Christians. He was a nasty, nasty piece of work. He would often dress Christians up in animal skins and he would put them in a cage and set a wild pack of dogs on them. He would often dip Christians in hot wax, tie them to a tree and then set fire to them. And as these dying and burning Christians were being literally burned alive, he used them as lanterns for his extravagant parties. 
And we can read history and we can hear stories like this. And it's easy for us to forget that those people were real people, brothers and sisters in Christ, people who had families, people who loved the Lord Jesus and wanted to live for him. And their lives were ended in a horrible, horrible fashion. And what was the call of Peter in the midst of that? Set apart Jesus Christ as Lord and always be ready to give a reason for the hope which is within you. For believers, in Peter's time, the call was to be ready to give that hope, and that meant the call was that no matter what they were to be facing, and no matter what came their way, they were called to confess their allegiance to Christ. It was a constant willingness to speak up for him, no matter what they faced. It was to tell people fearlessly about the saving grace of Jesus. Why is this so important? Why is it important for us? Really, for two reasons. Faith was never meant to be a private matter. Maybe you have heard people say to you in the past, well, I have a faith, and it's intensely personal to me, so I won't talk about it. Where the reality is that if we really believe the gospel to be true, if we really take it seriously, we have to talk about it. Because people need to hear the message of salvation. And secondly, it's the talk of Christ, the talk of salvation, and the talk of hope that Jesus gives, which actually sustains us and sustains this group of people here at the time Peter is writing, through the very darkest of times. It's the spoken reminder of what is to come, that one day there will be no more hurt, no more heartache, no more suffering, and no more death. And when we speak about our faith, it engages believers in such a way that whatever the turmoil that comes our way that we face, we can get through it. Let me ask you a question right now today, church. What is it in your life which is giving you hope at the moment? In a time where rising bills are meaning we look at our bank balances and we're wondering at times how we might stay afloat. In a time where a conflict in Europe means that war seems closer than ever to many of us today. In a time where governments don't really seem to have a handle on what's going on and how to deal with the current circumstances. What is it which is driving you and getting you through? The Bible tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How much do you speak of Jesus, I wonder? There is a reason that Paul says this, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Because as believers, part of going deeper in our discipleship is being a witness for him. It speaks hope to people who need it. It reminds us of the hope to which we cling to. And we read these words in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And Jesus says this, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Part of being a disciple is being a witness for Christ. But actually, this concept of witnessing and telling others about our faith is not merely a New Testament concept. It doesn't start there. It actually starts long, long before, right at the beginning. And what we see from Scripture is that God has always called a people to be his witnesses and a blessing to the nations around them. 
So, for example, if we had time together this morning to turn to Genesis chapter 12, what we would see is that God calls a man called Abraham, and he says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you abundantly, you're going to be a great nation, and that nation is going to be a blessing to all other nations in the world. And if we really had time together this morning, perhaps we would also turn to the book of Exodus next. You see, what we see in the book of Exodus is that this nation which was promised to Abraham comes to pass. And as a result of that nation coming to pass, through a whole different set of circumstances, they find themselves living in Egypt. And when they find themselves in Egypt, they eventually find themselves as slaves in Egypt. And when they find themselves as slaves in Egypt... God raises up a man called Moses who is to go into Egypt and he is to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And through a whole different set of miraculous signs and wonders culminating in this group of people walking across the Red Sea on dry land, that is exactly what happens. And then we see these words in Exodus chapter 19. The Lord called to him, that's Moses, out of the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So after coming out of slavery in Egypt, the call of the people of God is that they're ref meant to reflect on all that God has done for them, cling closely to him by obeying his word and be his treasured possession. They're called to be a kingdom of priests. They're called to be set apart to praise God in order that the world might see their praise and see their witness and come and be drawn to him and be blessed. And that picture's built up even further if we were to turn together this morning to Isaiah chapter 43, verses 10 to 12, where we read these words. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be one after me. I am the Lord, and besides me there is no saviour. I declared and saved and proclaimed that there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declared the Lord, and I am God. See, throughout Scripture... God's plan is to set a people group apart for himself, to honour him, to worship him, and to tell the world about him. So in this day and age, when we're thinking of our own discipleship journey and what that looks like, why is it so important for us to be a witness for Christ? First and foremost, because witnessing means that we follow in Jesus' example. If the goal of discipleship is for all of us to become more like Jesus, and you remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about the fact that who we choose to follow will determine our destination, we see that Jesus himself was a witness. Jesus, quoting from the book of Isaiah in Luke chapter 4, said this, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me. 
because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Secondly, we as the people of God in this day and age are called to be witnesses because Jesus commanded it. We've already heard from the book of Matthew today where Jesus tells his followers to go and to make disciples of all nations. And thirdly, we're called to be witnesses because witnessing is at the core of being a disciple. When Jesus called Peter, for example, what did he say to him? He said, follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. I love that. Follow me. Be my disciple and I am going to bring you into my story. You see, Jesus was a man on a mission and he invites us to be on that mission as well. And when we talk about witnessing, there are really two ways that we are called to witness through gospel demonstration by doing good works in order that we might bring something of the kingdom to the here and now, but also gospel proclamation by telling other people the good news of Jesus Christ. And a lot of times, in my experience, church is good at either one or the other, but we need to be good at both in absolute equal measure. Why? Because people need to hear the good news in order to realize that there is a better way to live. And they need to see the good news in action in order to see that there is some authenticity in what we say. If all we have is good works without good news, all we are is simply nice people. But if all we have is good news without good works, people don't want to hear what we have to say. And what we see in the life of Jesus is both proclamation and demonstration. And that is how we as disciples of Jesus are called to witness too. So let me ask you a question today, church. How has your witness been lately? I feel like when we talk about discipleship and the things that we have talked about together over the past couple of weeks, it can be very easy for us to listen to these sermons and think, well, the answer is I need to try harder. Come to church more, read your Bible more, tell more people about Jesus. And we can look at things and think, wow, my goodness, now I've got more things I need to do as a result of leaving this place. But the thing is, when what we take away from this is we need to try harder, we end up becoming simply disillusioned. This is not a message today that any of us need to try harder. But when we're talking about witnessing, in fact, when we're talking about anyone, what motivates us to talk about a person? Love motivates us to talk about a person. When you are in love, you can't get a person off of your mind. When you love someone, it's natural to want to talk about them, to let everyone else know how great they are and what you see in them. When you love someone, it just comes absolutely naturally to speak about them over and over again. So the key to effective witness is not try harder, rather seek greater intimacy with the one that we're witnessing about. Because when we catch a glimpse of Jesus for who he is, the reality is our hearts become filled with hope. 
And no matter what else is happening around us, no matter what else is going on, we simply can't help but talk about him. Maybe you're here today and you're thinking to yourself, well, what difference does it actually make? I've talked to people about Jesus before and I've seen nothing, no results, not interested, and it feels totally and utterly pointless. I want to finish this morning with a story. And it's a story that goes like this. It started a number of years ago in a Baptist church in Crystal Palace in South London. The Sunday morning service was closing and a man stood up at the back and he raised his hand and he said, excuse me, pastor, can I share a short testimony? The pastor looked at his watch and said, you have three minutes. The man proceeded with his story. I just moved into the area. I used to live in Sydney, Australia. Just a few months back, I was visiting some relatives and I was walking down George Street. You know where George Street is in Sydney, going right through the centre of the city, from the central business area out to the rocks, the old colonial harbour area. A strange little man with white hair met me and stepped out of the doorway of a shop, put a pamphlet in my hand and he said, excuse me, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? I was astounded by these words. No one had ever asked me that before. I thanked him courteously and all the way home to London, this puzzled me. I called a friend and thanked God he was a Christian and he led me to Christ. The Baptists loved the testimony. Everyone applauded and welcomed him into the fellowship. The Baptist pastor flew to Adelaide a few months later and within 10 days of being there, he heard three similar stories in Adelaide. A woman came up to him uh, for some counselling at the end of a service. He wanted to establish where she stood with Christ. And she said to him, I used to live in Sydney. And just a couple of months back, I was visiting some friends in Sydney, doing some last-minute shopping, and I went down George Street. A strange little man with white hair stepped out of a doorway of a shop, and he offered me a pamphlet, and he said, Excuse me, madam, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? I was disturbed by those words. And when I got home to Adelaide, I knew a local church where I went along, and I sought out the pastor, and he led me to Christ. So I'm telling you now, I I'm a Christian. The London pastor was puzzled further. Twice in two weeks, he had heard the same testimony. He flew to preach in a Mount Pleasant church in Perth, where his teaching series was over. The senior elder of the church took him out for a meal, and he asked the elder how he got saved. I grew up in a church, and from the age of 15, I never made a commitment to Jesus, and he just hopped on the bandwagon like everyone else. Because of my business ability, I grew up out of a place where I didn't really need anyone. I was on business in Sydney just three years ago. An obnoxious, spiteful little man stepped out of a shop doorway, offered me a religious pamphlet, cheap junk, and accosted me with a question. Excuse me, sir, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? I tried to tell him that I was a Baptist elder in my church, even though I was not saved. He wouldn't listen to me. I was seething with anger all the way home from Sydney to Perth, and I told my pastor, thinking that he would sympathise, but he agreed. 
he had been disturbed for years knowing that I'd never really had a true relationship with Jesus. And he was right. My pastor led me to Jesus just three years ago. The London preacher flew home and was speaking at the Keswick Convention in the Lake District. And he threw in these three testimonies. At the close of the teaching series, four elderly pastors came up to him and explained that they too had been saved 25 to 30 years ago through the same little man on George Street, offering them a pamphlet and asking the same question. The following week, he flew to a similar convention in the Caribbean for missionaries. He shared the same testimony. At the close of his teaching, three missionaries came forward and they said that they had been saved between 15 and 25 years earlier by the same little man's testimony by asking the same question on that street in Sydney. He then flew to Atlanta in Georgia to speak at a naval chaplain convention. Here, for three days, he spoke to over a thousand naval chaplains. After that cha chaplain conference was over, the general took him out for a meal, and he asked the chaplain how he became a Christian. It was miraculous, he said. I was on a naval battleship, and I lived a reprobate life. We were doing some exercises in the South Pacific, and we docked in Sydney Harbor for replenishments. We hit King's Cross, and I got drunk. And as I was staggering home that night, I thought I saw a ghost when a little man stepped out of a doorway and he said, sailor, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? The fear of God hit me immediately. I was sh shocked sober. I ran back to the ship. I sought out the chaplain and he led me to Christ. I soon began to prepare for ministry under his guidance, and now I'm in charge of over a 1,000 naval chaplains. Six months later, the same London pastor flew to a conference of 5,000 Indian missionaries in a remote part of northeast India. At the end, the head missionary took him to this humble little home for a simple meal. He asked him how he, as a Hindu, came to know Christ. I grew up a very privileged position. I worked for the Indian diplomatic mission and I traveled the world. And I'm so glad for the forgiveness of Christ and the blood covering my sin because I would be very embarrassed if people found out how, what I got into. One period I of, dif of diplomatic service took me to Sydney and I was there doing some last minute shopping laden with toys and gifts for my children. And I was walking down a street called George Street when a courteous, white-haired, little old man stepped out and he said, excuse me, sir, are you saved? If you die tonight, are you going to heaven? I thanked him very much, but that question disturbed me. I got back to my town. I sought out the Hindu priest. He couldn't help me, but he advised me to satisfy my curiosity and said I should talk to the local missionary. So that's what I did. And that was good advice. Because that day, that missionary led me to Christ. I quit Hinduism immediately and began to prepare for ministry. I left the diplomatic service that day, and by God's grace, I'm now in charge of these missionaries who have led over 100,000 people to Christ. Eight months later, that same London pastor was preaching in Sydney, Australia. He asked the local Baptist minister if he knew of a little old man with white hair who gave out tracts on George Street. He replied, yes, I do. His name is Frank Jenner, although I don't think he does that anymore because he is frail and elderly. Two nights later, they went to meet him in his little apartment. They knocked on his door and this tiny, frail old man greeted them. He sat them down 
and he made them some tea. He was so frail that he was slopping the tea into the saucer because his hands were shaking so much. The London preacher told him all of these different accounts that he had heard, and the little man sat with tears running down his cheeks, and he told him his story. He said this, I was a rating on an Australian warship. I was living a reprobate life in crisis. I really hit a wall. And one of my colleagues, to whom I gave literal hell to, was there to help me. He led me to Jesus, and the change in my life started that night. I was so grateful to God. I promised God that for the rest of my life, I would share the good news of Jesus with at least 10 people every day. And God has given me the strength to do that. Sometimes I was ill and couldn't go out, but I made it up the days I missed. I wasn't paranoid about it. I've done this for over 40 years, and in my retirement years, the best place to do that was on George Street, where I saw hundreds of people every single day. I got a lot of rejections, but a lot of people were courteous and took a track. And in 40 years of doing this, I never heard of a single person coming to know Jesus. That simple little old man witnessed to perhaps 150,000 people over that time periods and after that meeting he passed on to glory two days later can you imagine the fanfare that would have awaited him when he met with Jesus we don't do this for our own benefit to make ourselves look good we don't do this in order to build ourselves or puff ourselves up but we're called to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and witness to what he has done in our lives because we have a message which is so powerful and so life-changing and so life-altering that we can't keep it to ourselves. Friends, you may never ever know the impact that your story will have on another. But here's the thing. Jesus Christ has given everything for us. So we, in turn, need to leave our four walls to tell people about his love. I'm going to invite people to stand and invite the band to come back up.